I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or any other places that will probably ban us at some point, wherever you get your podcasts. So today we've got some breaking news that we'll start with, and we'll tee that up for Emily, who will be discussing the newest upcoming vacancy on the Supreme Court. Next, we'll transition over to Rachel, who will talk about Capitol Cops' snooping on lawmakers' visitors at the Capitol. I'll talk a little bit about the potential death of something the DOJ should actually be doing, its China counter-espionage initiative. And then Josh will talk a bit about the whole Ukraine-Russia contra attempts. So with that, I'll turn it over to Emily. Well, absolutely. There's not a ton to say on this subject right now, because as we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, it has broken within the last at least two hours, if not less than that. Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring, creating a vacancy with Democrats having control of Congress and the White House. Um, so Joe Biden, President Joe Biden and the Democratic establishment and really the, the entire sort of left wing movement are salivating uh, at the prospect of replacing Stephen Breyer. Um, we've heard President Biden in the past say he would like to uh, replace uh, a justice with a, a young woman of color. He may have even specifically said a, a black woman, which, again, it's, it's sort of we're getting into this neo racism question um, that surely will inform their election. We know that much. We don't have a ton of information about what's going to happen, but you can bet um, there will be uh, some neo-racism involved in the process. So I'll open it up to the group because, again, we don't really have any inclination. I'm sure Josh, sort of coming from legal circles, already has some names like dancing around in group chats and whatever else. But this is obviously on a political level. It will impact the midterms uh, in the same way that uh, the death of Justice Ginsburg um, impacted the politics of the time and you can go back a million different to a million different vacancies and say the same thing. So will this be motivating for Democrats? Uh, will this be motivating for Republicans? Of course, there'll be a little bit of both, but who sort of wins in that tug of war? Um, and then, of course, on the more important level, not the, poli the politics level, but the substantive issue, um, how will this affect the court? How, who can we expect to sort of step in here? What kind of justice can we expect to step in? How will they differ from Breyer? Um, and, and what does the sort of future of the court look like with a Biden nominee, given what we can kind of assume about how that person um, would uh, make decisions? I'll open it up to the group with that. So definitely not surprised, right? I mean, I think a lot of us expected this exact outcome. It's just a question of when Justice Breyer would make that announcement. He's into his 80s now. Obviously, it's a closely divided 50-50 Senate. Republicans seem poised to take back the Senate. So this really was the time to do it. So definitely not a surprise. Um, Justice Breyer, based on, I've never met the man, but basically every conservative friend of mine who has clerked on the court says that he is both nice and extremely arrogant. On a personal level, I find his writing extremely turgid. I think he's one of the worst writers on the court. Um, Elena Kagan is actually kind of a wonderful legal writer. Stephen Breyer, I don't think anyone would ever say that about. So his legacy will be will be interesting. Um, you know, he's been a strong proponent over the years, obviously, of kind of a traditional kind of, well, traditional living constitutionalist, kind of an oxymoron, but a, a, a standard boilerplate leftist version of living constitutionalism, you might say. He's spoken of that at, at great length. 
Um, he is more moderate than where the Democratic Party base is on certain issues. The really main issue that comes to mind, I would say, is criminal justice, kind of Fourth Amendment, like police search warrants kind of issues. Every so often he's sided with the conservative bloc on some of those kind of bread and butter law and order issues. So, you know, expect the Democratic base, I think, to look for someone certainly more progressive than him. Just a question of how progressive they can get through in a 50-50 Senate. Rachel will have more, more color on this than I can. I don't think Mansion Cinema will put up much of a fight on this nominee. Um, if there's any issue where, where, you know, you kind of expect kind of like a true kind of party line to stick together, it's, it's a Supreme Court vacancy. Mansion Cinema, another one strikes me as the kind of senator who cares, frankly, like a, a ton about jurisprudence or about the future of the court. They seem focused, for better or for worse, on other issues. So I would expect their nominee to go through. Um, the names are getting floated here already. Are, um, there's Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, who was elevated to the D.C. Circuit barely over a year ago or so. Uh, there is precedent for that, of course. Um, Ju- uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas both came from the D.C. Circuit as well without a whole lot of time, uh, without a whole lot of time in the lower court. So th- this has been done before. Uh, Leandra Kruger is another name that's getting tossed out there. She's on the California Supreme Court. I think most people think that she is kind of intellectually superior, uh, just to be blunt about it, to Brown Jackson. But Brown Jackson has her... Um, proponents. So, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. An intriguing possibility, of course, is Kamala Harris. I mean, like she is like a woman of color and she's frankly, you know, less popular than AIDS right now. So if Biden wants an easy way to get rid of her in advance of 24, you could just kind of get, you know, <laughs> literally nominate her and get her away from the vice president's office. Right. Um, you know, it'll be an interesting fight. I mean, like there's not a whole lot, honestly, that Republicans can do. I mean, again, I'm curious if Rachel has kind of any kind of inside baseball parliamentarian kind of tactics, but it, it's hard to foresee exactly what kind of fight, you know, like uh, Senators Cruz, Holly Lee and so forth on Judiciary Committee might be able to put forth here. Um, but we'll see. I mean, you know, SCOTUS fights are always important. They were not supposed to be important. Um, that's not the way our system was designed. That's, that's the way that the system has evolved for better or more likely for worse. Um, but they're probably going to get their nominee through for uh, it's just really just a question of, of, of how quickly they can coalesce around who the nominee is. You're on mute, Rachel. Um, I agree with your assessment that this is going to be a relatively uneventful confirmation, you know, specifically to the point that there is nothing Republicans can do to stop it at this point, given just the sheer numbers in the Senate. Um, this goes back to 2017 when Mitch McConnell, you know, did the last version of the nuclear option on the judicial filibuster for the Supreme Court when he removed the 60 vote threshold. Supreme Court justices are confirmed with 51 votes. Um, the, the one, I think, issue with putting Kamala in the seat is that they need her. Potentially, <laughs> they need her uh, as the vice president, president of the Senate for that 51st vote. Although I will also say, I'm not even sure we'll have a full bulwark of Republican opposition. I mean, you look at someone like Susan Collins, who has voted for every single Democrat appointed Supreme Court justice while she's been in the Senate. Um, and I can think of, you know, four or five others that might go along uh, with her in this because, you know, they're retiring or they just, you know, believe in sort of this bygone era of acceptance of the other side's nominees. I'm thinking specifically of Lindsey Graham uh, in this moment. So you never know. I I think the other reason I think it will be fairly straightforward is because, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but the Capitol complex is still completely closed. So you will not see any public participation uh, in that nomination fight, which to be honest, I think I'm concerned at how much the senators like that (laughs) on both sides of the aisle. So, but that's just my two cents. 
Yeah, well, let me just say also worth putting in context is the fact that Joe Biden, I believe, had more federal judges confirmed during that first year than a president's Trump or Obama. So if you want to talk about any expected resistance or not from Senate Republicans, I think that speaks for itself. I mean, notwithstanding the Merrick Garland case, the one sole case where Republicans actually fought with the same tenacity that Democrats would fight. I think we can expect probably more of the same here. I want to throw two potential nominees out there. Janice Rogers Brown, if we want a woman of color on the court. Uh, and it's also an anti-ageist pick. So I throw that out there for the Biden administration. Um, and then also, if we're if we're looking at the Machiavellian, you know, you want to push Kamala Harris out of that seat. Although I think to, to Rachel's point, it would probably be a, a very dubious decision on the substance. Um, I think was, she also failed the bar exam, so it might be like a problem well, in that regard. Well, that said, though, you know, you don't have to be a, a you don't have to have a J.D. to be a Supreme Court justice. Justice True. Robert Jackson, uh, one of the more famous. Yeah, right. <laughs> per- precisely. Uh, the other the other also Justice is, Robert Jackson, but you know, Kim Kardashian, Justice Jackson, who knows? Incomparable uh, in their fame or infamy, <laughs> as the case may be. Um I will say if I was Chuck Schumer, I would really be pushing hard for AOC to get that nomination uh, because it would probably destroy her career if she were actually under the uh, bright lights of a confirmation process and it might sideline her. Uh, but actually, to, to a serious point related to that is I think Republicans ought to encourage the most radical and reckless pick possible here. And I would think that Democrats and the Biden administration will be disciplined enough to find a way to appease progressives while not blowing themselves up in a midterm election any further than they're going to blow themselves up. But we have to hope that the pick either enrages progressives or is so radically progressive that it further both turns off the the median voter that Josh likes to speak to in this podcast often um, or in general just turns people off and wakes up uh, Republicans or independents uh, who see the radicalism. That said, obviously, you're filling a briar seat. It's not as if this is a purportedly really moderate Supreme Court justice that's being replaced. So, um, you know, how much sort of acrimony and fighting there will be over it, I think, is yet to be seen. But I think this does open up uh, interesting political opportunities all around, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Uh, any parting thoughts on this? Excuse me. Real quick, because Emily also asked about kind of the the political ramifications of this. I mean, they're going to get the nominee through, I mean, likely before the midterm. So it'll probably be kind of um, all all said and done. But having said that, I mean, I think the logical guess is that if anything, this actually is a political matter, does help Republicans. I mean, polling at poll after poll, polling for years and years, really decades now, just consistently shows that Republicans care about the court more than Democrats do, that they vote on the court more than Democrats do. So um, it's very easy to foresee a way in which kind of like the NRSC and all of their allies can like make this like a central pivotal electoral issue, I think. One last so, thing I'll yeah, yeah one last go. thing I'll say briefly about Ben's characterization of the Republicans fighting about, about Merrick Garland. I just want to point out the fact that it was the right decision not to bring the nomination to the floor, but it required zero effort. It required not doing anything. And the only reason I bring this up is because this is how the lens through which people need to view the Senate. If it requires effort, they're not going to do it. If it requires nothing, maybe they'll do it. So the, the Rachel's the lower on Mitch McConnell intensifies. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'm just saying the dude thrives at doing nothing. And this is an example. <laughs>
All right. So with that, let's go right back to Rachel to talk about the insurrection in response to the insurrection. Yes. Yes. So Politico uh, was out with a, a pretty jaw dropping story this week, in my opinion, about the lengths to which the Capitol Police are going to spy not only on lawmakers, but on the people who come to meet with them. So they uh, two reporters, Betsy Witter Swan and Daniel Lippman at Politico, exposed this sort of new initiative at, at the Capitol Police, who are now examining the social media feeds the real estate holdings, the tax records uh, of the people who come to meet with lawmakers. And so this is obviously just their constituents, also state legislators, mayors. They're allegedly also doing this to Hill staff uh, with the the order to look for anything that might be, you know, uh, putting put law, putting lawmakers in a, quote, bad light. Nobody knows what that means. And of course, or who's making that judgment. So there's a million reasons to oppose this. Obviously, the the most obvious glaring one is that you're literally surveilling people who are petitioning their government. I mean, this is <laughs> you're burdening the First Amendment at this point. Every every American citizen has the right to petition their government for the redress of grievances without fear of reprisal. And that gets to the other concerning factor, which is that we don't actually know what Capitol Police is doing with this information. We don't know if they're holding it, if you know they're weaponizing it, who they're sharing it with. Capitol Police is not subject to FOIA. It's not subject to public records requests. It's only subject to congressional oversight, which apparently hasn't been done here because all a number of lawmakers that were interviewed from the article, um, some examples were used of, you know, their backgrounds being searched. They had no idea this was even happening. And so, you know, four years in, in the Trump era have shown us how information like this can be weaponized, right? Leaked at the opportune moment, you know, to to damage an incumbent or help a candidate, you know, by, a, by an agency with no so, you know, conveniently immune to FOIA. We, we we never we never find out. So I think there's a lot of of, of layers to this. But the way that I couched it in a, in a piece that was up at the Federalist this morning is that really this is an imposition of it's a physical manifestation of the hierarchy that we're living in now. Um, you are not you know, you you are not allowed access to your representatives anymore. Um, this whole American notion that we sit equal to our legislators in self-government in our citizen legislator is out the window because, you know, you have to overcome more and more hurdles now to even get access to the seat of your government. We're not you know, just talking about basic security protocols, which have gone up, obviously, in the wake of January 6th. But the buildings themselves are still completely closed. And the excuse given here is COVID, despite the fact that we know football state and we see football stadiums all around the country packed. Right. We know lawmakers fly on full airplanes back and forth to the Capitol. The Senate still votes in person. There's no real reason for these buildings to be closed, except for the fact that I think a number of members of Congress, and I, I think this is probably a bipartisan problem, actually like the fact that they are shielded from the rabble. Right. That the hoi polloi can't accost them in the hallway, that there is a barrier now between the voters uh, and the accountability they bring and the representative element, you know, that 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 Congress is supposed to is supposed to have. And I really think this just does a disservice to what our, our you know, not just in a symbolic way, but in an actual way of what our government represents. Going back to the Supreme Court example, if you remember the Kavanaugh confirmation, right, how many people had access to the, the Capitol 
and the Senate office buildings to protest, right, to exercise their right to do so. Now, you would argue that the left did it in a very sort of almost violent way. Images from that Kavanaugh confirmation, I think you could often conflate with this post-January 6th era, right? And people would be shocked. Uh, You had them being arrested by Capitol Police, but nobody, no, at no time was access shut off because that that is fundamental to self-government. So my fear is that this is going to continue, that, you know, it's going to, even when COVID's, I mean, I would say COVID's over now, frankly, but even, you know, in the next like year or two that Republicans take over, they will keep this in place. They will keep the burden of access, um, you know, on on this, the constituencies and, and it won't go away. And I think this is a very dangerous trend that represents sort of the broader hierarchy that's being imposed across the country between, you know, the rabble and the ruled. So I open it up for that. All right. Well, due to lack of any other interest in hopping in first, I will, I will, I will, I will fill that. <laughs> I picked void. a boring topic. Apparently, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's it's, it's not a boring topic. Um, so what this reminds me of actually, there was an NBC News article the other day, um, and it was like the, it was like the tweet for the article, and I guess like the lead in the intro paragraph, talking about how kind of. Uh, anti-CRT or CRT skeptical parents are looking for transparency, right? They're looking for kind of curricular transparency. This kind of gets discussed often in the context of legislative proposals for a new kind of parents' bill of rights, Glenn Youngkin, all that. But the flip side was kind of, you know, liberals, progressives, whatever, are now, interestingly, uh, contrary to their what they historically were, are now on the anti-transparency side. They're on the side that this could somehow undermine teachers or teachers' unions or, or something like that. So it kind of reminds me of that, right? Where like the, um, you know, the January 6th hysteria crowd that wants to make this kind of an, inf- an infinite war on group thing to borrow from Ben's phraseology that, he, that he's used repeatedly and accurately at Newsweek. The left in both kind of the CRT context and this context appears to be kind of on the side of don't be transparent, you know, don't like kind of the hoi polloi near like um, the elites, just let, let the elites kind of do their thing. It's just so interesting, right? I mean, like it, it, that is just like literally flipping on its face what the left once stood for. I mean, the, the quote about kind of how sunlight is often the best disinfectant. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing that. That's literally a Louis Brandeis quote. I'm speaking of the Supreme Court. That's like a Justice Brandeis quote. Um, you know, Justice Brandeis was a, a paradigmatic liberal. I mean, he was a very much kind of like an old school civil libertarian, like a, like a very old school lefty back when they used to make decent lefties. So. It's just interesting to me, um, the parallel that I think I can draw between that CRT context and what Rachel's discussing here. Um, but it's, it, it, you know, the, the broader thematic point is that the left has become like the party of elites. Um, you know, they're in this bizarre institute. They're in this, this bizarre coalition, you know, between kind of like the limousine liberals on the Upper West Side and then like some, you know, random intersectional groups who kind of. Uh, you know, are at the trough and, and and the the Upper West Side liberals can kind of like expiate their sins and kind of like throwing kind of little ingredients out there. So it's a bizarre coalition. But, you know, the Republican Party at this point is the party of the hoi polloi, whether or not Republican legislators want that to be the case or not. It's time to just embrace that. And I'll add to Rachel's point that Congress is not subject to FOIA laws, um, which in in this context is sort of even more alarming. And I get that this is publicly available information. They say they're only collecting publicly available information. Um, We wouldn't really know that unless it leaked. But either way, it does get into what some privacy advocates, uh, how they responded to the story they were saying well, this is getting dangerously close to creating dossiers on private citizens who are just basically 
um, basically accessing basic government services, right? So like the burden to access basic government services now, by the way, which we pay for with the with the capital that we work for is having um, all of your publicly available information, which in this day and age is exploitive to the extent that like surveillance capitalism relies on things that we don't always know we're giving up and we shouldn't have to not know. It shouldn't be that difficult for us to know what uh, what sort of data that we're giving up. So that's, I think, where this is particularly alarming. And, and Rachel points this out in other contexts. But uh, the, the reality that to go to a school board meeting, right, that to just access the basic functions of not just civil society, but your own government, you have to pay with your data. This is the, the sort of gateway. Um, and again, is it publicly available? It seems as though that's the case for now. But when you're compiling it in a way that it looks like a dossier on, on private citizens, just who are trying to access basic government services, I think this is absolutely alarming and sort of speaks to the fact that we are now careening down the slippery slope. Yeah, I don't have a lot of kind of unique original material to add here. Um, but I will say it's worth noting, interestingly, that members of Congress themselves are not vetted for security clearances. Yet you have the Capitol Police now snooping on visitors of lawmakers, uh, good citizens, by the way, doing their jobs of actually trying to hold their purported representatives accountable. So I think Rachel's point about that this further puts government at remove from the people. And you see that obviously in vivid illustrative terms in terms of buildings being wholly locked out with security guards around them. This is basically just the Washington, D.C. version of you know, the elites at the elite restaurant without masks on while their servers are wearing masks and all the other kind of images that we have today, which enshrines the fact that we really do have um, a, a ruling class in this country that has a monopoly on power. It's held to one standard and we're all held to an increasingly shrinking and different standard unless we are favored by that ruling class. Also on Josh's point, and there was a point made to this effect in a recent piece of the American Mind, um, the headline of which escapes me. But it's also very clear that with the left, where they've switched positions on basically everything, now they are the party of the national security apparatus and the intelligence apparatus. Um, they are anti-free speech. All of these uh, sort of sacred areas where they used to be the critics, the old leftists, up to and including almost even communists on the left. And in some cases, I guess, the, the, like the Worldwide Socialist website or whatever it's called was some of the greatest critics of the 1619 Project. So go figure as to how these positions have shifted. I think what it shows is that for progressives, technocrats, administrative elites and the like, administrative state elites and the like, liberty and justice are really contingent on who has power at the end of the day, which means they don't actually care about liberty and justice. They care about using these ideals to protect their power. And of course, you see this in the rhetoric about protecting our democracy, so-called, which means their power. So I think this story pulls together a lot of threads. And the last thing I'll say is this is really intimidation by a police force of citizens doing their job as good citizens. And that is a really disturbing and dark place to be in America. And it fits with the broader theme that I've been harping on. I wish I didn't have to for over the last year, which is this is what happens when you turn political dissenters from rolling class orthodoxy into actual or would be domestic terrorists. Um, so with that, I'll get off my uh, soapbox and get on a different soapbox with respect to uh, our purported opposition to communist China, which I think is 
uh, now potentially coming under fire. So, and I would note the contrast here, by the way, that we have learned recently that the DOJ is building a new domestic terror unit. At the very same time, it's, it's building this new domestic terror unit. The DOJ has been dropping a number of cases stemming from its China initiative. The China initiative was something undertaken originally by the Trump administration to counter effectively China's economic war on America. So this was a counter espionage focused effort coordinated across the country to go after IP theft, economic espionage, basically researchers taking advantage of our leading tech companies um, in the defense space, certainly, and beyond, as well as our leading research and academic institutions to pilfer information and technologies essential to China's effort to be the global hegemon. So most recently, the Biden DOJ dropped a case, which is worth talking about a little bit, against an MIT professor named Gang Chen. And he was accused of hiding his China ties while applying for a federal research grant. And it's important to note what this indict the indictment of Chen says, which almost none of the news article is reporting on this dropped case talk about. According to the indictment, he held numerous positions, quote, designed to promote China's technological and scientific development, often in exchange for financial compensation, including, quote, acting as an overseas expert for the Chinese government. And it goes on that indictment to talk about potentially millions of dollars that he reaped from essentially working on behalf of the Chinese government. Prosecutors dropped the case reportedly uh, because the Department of Energy, where he was seeking this grant, didn't believe he had an obligation to disclose these positions at the time he applied for the grant and also didn't believe it would have withheld the grant if it had known about them. So that might be even a bigger scandal than anything, that the Department of Energy would not have blocked a grant to someone, even if he had disclosed these ties to our greatest adversary in the world who seeks to supplant us as a dominant world power. Uh, but it's worth putting this in a broader context that the Biden DOJ has dropped a number of cases. Uh, in other cases, visa fraud cases regarding people with ties to the Chinese People's Liberation Army. And as well, the Biden administration created a sweetheart deal with the CFO of the tip of the spear of the CCP's effort for dominance, Huawei, where she basically uh, was let off for admitting to certain things she had lied about in the past and was never extradited to the U.S., got to go back to China, basically scot-free in uh, a major high-profile case. Now, every case, of course, ought to be judged on its merits when you're talking about using the DOJ and the FBI to pursue cases, particularly against American citizens with Chinese ties. Obviously, of course, there they seem to care about civil liberties, not in the case in so many other instances when it comes to people whose politics they don't like. But this has to be put in the broader context of the fact that the China initiative is under review by the Biden administration. And several, a number of the groups, including slews of academics around the country, uh, as well as left wing groups and Asia associated Asian identity associated groups from before Biden was inaugurated, have been pushing for the Biden DOJ to get rid of this initiative. You may recall Stop AAPI Hate, which was basically the sole group coming out saying that there was a massive uptick in anti-Asian sentiment, and it's driven by Trump talking about COVID. They called for the Biden administration to impose an executive order barring the use of Wuhan flu or Chinese coronavirus and talking about it, of course, de facto on behalf of the CCP. The Biden administration issued an executive order to that effect early on. They also called on the DOJ's China initiative to be pulled, and it's under review. And I think the dropping of these cases combined with that pressure from the left and also based upon some reporting talking about how the initiative is under scrutiny points to the fact that the DOJ is going to it may well drop an initiative that it actually ought to be engaged in on behalf of the American people. At the same time, it's part of this apparatus engaged in a war on wrong think 
on Americans. So I, I guess I'd put it to the group. Do you see this the way that I do? And what does this say about the broader U.S.-China policy under Biden? Do we have a China policy under Biden? I guess that's like my first response, because I think, you know, you're right to point out sort of like the level of espionage, the level of is not, you know, intellectual espionage, industrial espionage, actual espionage that's taking place. And, and no one seems intent on doing anything about it. And all we can manage is like weak need diplomatic boycotts of the Olympics. Like there's not, you know, nothing meaningful there at all. And, you know, like we've talked about ad nauseum at this point, corporate America is the biggest you know, ally to China. And until we do something about that, we can't actually have a China policy. So, and I see no leadership from the White House on that front either. You know, I don't think, I don't see any public rep- reprimands of the egregious activities uh, that we see from America's corporate actors, you know, movie studios, actors themselves, right. And engaging with China. So, you know, this is something where smarter minds than me are going to have to, I think, all of you, by the way, on this podcast, smarter minds than me are going to have to actually iterate on this question because it's terrifying. And, and especially the prosecutions uh, the DOJ did in the Trump era for what exactly was going on in intellectual circles and in universities, I think, was really, really disturbing. If we can't follow up on that, that's baseline. That is just baseline activity. Yeah, I mean, when Rachel asked the question, like, what is our China policy? I mean, it brings me back to, you know, two or three podcasts ago when I did a segment on like, what does it even mean to have a foreign policy? I, you know, this is a preview, obviously, of the next segment on Russia and Ukraine as well. But it's a, it's a serious question. It's like what it means to have a coherent foreign policy when, especially in, in a case like China, where corporate America and, you know, the barons and titans of industry have interests that are not just not in sync, that, that are not just not harmonious with like the interests of, of the proverbial media in America and the Ben referred to earlier. They are directly like and manifestly contrary. Like they are literally like pointing in like basically complete opposite directions. There's nothing there ultimately is just no way to solve that problem other than heavy handed state action. Um, you know, ideally, obviously, from Congress. But as we've said on previous episodes, I mean, like to, to the extent that there was wiggle room in the executive branch from previously delegated congressional authority, that it, it certainly could and therefore probably should happen in that space as well. But, you know, on the on, on the Olympics point in general, I mean, I, you know, Emily's coming up next year. I, I, Emily, I'd be curious if you're planning, you know, as kind of our culture person here, I'd be curious if you're, if you're planning to kind of watch the Olympics or if you're going to do kind of your own kind of quasi boycott of sorts. I'd love to boycott them, but I also think it's really important for people to monitor how NBC is covering the Olympics because they have literally billions of dollars on the line. And I think that's a huge reason the government um, decided on the diplomatic boycott and seems really intent on that and never escalated, really never even thought of escalating to anything beyond a diplomatic boycott. Um, and unless you're, you know, a couple of Republicans who have been making noise about it. So I, I think I unfortunately am going to be watching the Olympics, uh, but it does this whole conversation conversation reminds me of just before we started recording, I uh, posted a clip of from my friend Sagar, um, who a lot of us know, uh, Sagar and Jetty on his show Breaking Points with Crystal Ball did a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful monologue on what we saw play out at the World Economic Forum um, from people like Klaus Schwab, who are doing this like actual Alex Jones, like making turning him into a prophet. And they're doing it just like out in the open, like with their great reset and great narrative. Um, and when we're talking about the China policy, what's essential to keep in mind, it's that they think 
they know better than the rest of us. We saw that on full display at the World Economic Forum. They think they are uniquely and sort of singularly qualified to orchestrate um, global harmony, and they mean global harmony. So why do you have Klaus Schwab absolutely lavishing Xi Jinping in praise, despite what we know is going on in his country? Because they think they can sort of central plan us into a better future by just sort of winking, John Kerry saying, you know, we have to focus on climate. We can talk about genocide later. They really think they can talk through these things and they really think they can sort of glad hand their way to the end of history. Um, they really do believe that. And when we talk about how the Biden administration approaches China, how they approach all kinds of different uh, issues of foreign policy, I think uh, it's the Olympics are such a great example. You know, why does NBC get away with this? Just saying that they're going to keep the larger, quote, geopolitical context in mind. That's really what their PR person said. Why can they do that? Because, again, they are personally convinced like that they don't have blood on their hands, that they are actually they're partnering with TikTok. Like this is the, the big news now is that NBC is partnering with TikTok to promote the Olympics. TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is basically a propaganda arm of the CCP. They have worked with the CCP to censor things and to promote basically propaganda. So why is NBC working with a company that is whitewashing human rights abuses? because they really think they can cooperate their way into global harmony. And they obviously can't. These are countries with diametrically opposed uh, perspectives and, and ambitions, um, and they're just going to make money while the clash uh, hurts the rest of us. Yeah, just just to follow up on that, I mean, I do think there's a percentage of people who are cowed by communist China and they really fear and they're helped making it a self-fulfilling prophecy that China will be the dominant player. So better to fall in line literally with the party now, even though they, of course, will be the first ones literally or figuratively lined up and shot, as happens every single time a communist take over. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then, of course, there's the greed element of this as well. Um, and, you know, you're talking about global harmony and the broader geopolitical context. And all I could think about was those communications between Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. And they're talking about, well, we have to suppress lab leak effectively. We have to suppress lab leak because God forbid, you know, we upset communist China. And oh, by the way, of course, you know, if we expose communist China, we're in effect exposing ourselves because we were the ones funneling millions of dollars into them. So they're sort of uh, there's culpability on everyone's hands here. Uh, but the fact that they're acting like that, the great reset crowd, I think speaks to the fact that they think they've won in many respects that they, they have just to segue over to, to Josh's segment. The one thing I'll say is it'd be interesting to see what happens to the extent there was some Russian provocation uh, if they would hold off until after the Olympics. And the other aspect of this, of course, and, and I don't want to steal too much of Josh's thunder, is that, of course, if there is some sort of confrontation between the U.S. and other European powers, potentially or not, and Russia, of course, this accrues to the benefit of communist China. And what happens to Taiwan to the extent America is embroiled in some sort of confrontation with Russia? Uh, with that, I'll set the stage for Josh and turn it over to him. OK, yeah. So this is the topic of the day right now. Well, I guess the topic literally of the day, of course, is Breyer's retirement. But this has been the topic of the past couple of weeks. This is an issue that probably will not go away, um, at least for an, another week or two here. And we're talking, of course, about uh, the Russian Federation's possible invasion or, you know, if you want to quote our senile president, a, a minor incursion um, yeah, into Ukraine. 
Uh, we're, t- we're talking here, obviously, uh, you know, so just to, to, to set the stage historically a little bit, I am not kind of a, a history of, of, of a, a history specialist or historian of Eastern European affairs, obviously, but a lot of these kind of traditional satellite states that were part of the Soviet Union, whether it's Belarus, um, Estonia, Latvia, up in the Baltic or Ukraine, um, they, you know, they certainly are obviously um, historically, culturally and ethnically distinct, but, but the distinction does tend to blur a bit uh, on, on the margins here. And, you know, if you think about Crimea in particular, you know, Putin famously went into Crimea in, in, in 2014. I, you know, there is a not insubstantial amount of ethnic Russians and Russian speaking people there who actually welcome um, uh, a, a Russian annexation of that. In fact, it's really interesting. On a personal note, I was, I, I was at Shabbat dinner this past Friday and there were there were four um, either Russian or Ukrainian Jews at this dinner. And they, they were actually all somewhere between, you know, ambivalent or just really just totally agnostic on whether um, Putin should go ahead and do this. But to kind of get bring it back to the here and now here. So what's happening is Russia has upwards of 100,000 troops uh, amassed basically near the Ukrainian border. That, that's a lot. OK, I mean, like that's obviously like a serious amount of, ma- of manpower. Um, Russia to this day has the second largest nuclear arsenal after the United States. Uh, a lot of that weaponry is, is kind of rusty and, and somewhat dilapidated, obviously, because they haven't exactly had the economy uh, in the post-Cold War era that I think many thought or at least hope they might have here. So really kind of the question that we're kind of building towards here on NatCon Squad on this program is what is kind of like a NatCon approach to this particular issue? Uh, NATO, obviously, uh, is kind of like a, a quintessential kind of, I think, international tribunal, the likes of which national conservatives ought to be skeptical. Um, you know, the, the, the founding era origin, the telos, if you will, of NATO, obviously, in, a, in the post-war period was to deter Russia. NATO is... Um, or Ukraine, I should say, is is not a part of NATO. Vladimir Putin feels particularly strongly that that should remain the case there. I guess one obvious question, some of our friends, um, you know, the Sober Maris and Jordan Schacht tells the world that they've been kind of blogging about this and writing about this is, where are kind of the European NATO members on the possibility of Russia invading Ukraine? Well, the short answer is they're not really doing a whole lot. I mean, there have been you know various kind of arms shipments, um, you know, from the UK and from some of our Western European allies to Eastern European countries to try and kind of bolster and, and deter a possible Putin invasion. But you know, as Sorab wrote in his Washington Post op-ed, you know, the French public, fifty-three percent of the French public, if I remember the exact number correctly, say that they would not support enforcing NATO's Article Five obligation to withstand a Russian invasion. I think the number is sixty percent in in Germany. So the question, from like an American kind of conservative and national conservative perspective, is how much should I think we be doing to deter a Russian invasion into Europe? that a lot of European allies themselves don't necessarily seem particularly inclined to do. So Biden, you know, has sent kind of 8,000 troops um, over there. They're kind of on, uh, or at least they're uh, on guard, ready to, ready to be deployed at any moment's notice here. He has said that we will not get ourselves entangled in an actual military invasion. I guess here's what I would personally say, and I'm really just kind of spitballing here. And we really curious for everyone's thoughts. Maybe, maybe we'll even like disagree a little bit, which would be fun. I, I, I guess I would suggest that kind of a NATCOM perspective on a conflict such as Russia, Ukraine would effectively look as follows. I, I, Putin is obviously not a friend of the United States. Okay. I mean, like I, I realize there's like a small segment of like the very online, uh, online riot that is like Putin fanboys. 
I, I mean, you know, he, Russia is obviously not the geopolitical threat that it was 30, 40 years ago. I'm the first one to like uh, to say that and I'll say it as, as much needs to be said. But Putin does not have America's best interests at heart, obviously. At the same time, you know, a lot of these kind of Central and Eastern European countries, kind of, you know, the, the, the Poland, Czech Republics of the world definitely, I think, do have much more in common, obviously, with the West. And we should be, you know, bolstering them and buttressing them. The Trump administration famously kind of put missile defense back into Central and Eastern Europe. A lot of that kind of in the aggregate makes sense. But I would stop short of actual kind of physical troop deployments there because you're really just kind of setting yourself up for a possible tinderbox situation. And why would you risk that tinderbox kind of flashpoint flare up situation, especially when Ukraine, A, is not a NATO member. B, again, a lot of the people in the Donbass and these kind of contested regions are really kind of ethnically Russians, Russian speakers who just really, if you ask them a lot, then would actually just want Putin to frankly annex the country. I don't have polling on that, but it's it's definitely mixed. And C, at the same time, is obviously to kind of state the obvious point here, guys. I mean, like the age of like the global American empire is over. Like that, that era is finito. That is finished. It is done. We are like dying here at home with internal rot and decay. And we just cannot extend like our forces all over the world like this willy nilly. But I've been ranting for too much here. Um, I, my question is like, do you guys buy that kind of line that I drew between kind of bolstering our allies, but, but stopping short of physical troop deployment? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I, I actually agree with that entirely. And, and Josh, in fairness, I didn't expect to <laughs> uh, because I tend to be I tend to sort of depart from Sorab um, on that. These sort of uh, on his uh, perspective on global order. Um, and it's not that I, I fully understand um, the argument and I am sympathetic to it for sure. Um, but I actually agree pretty much exactly with what you said, Josh, that it, the genie is kind of out of the bottle, out of the bottle. And it has been since since the end of World War II, and it has been since the nuclear arms race on whether or not we can afford to sort of be what people would call isolationist or whether or not we can. And nobody's saying that we should be isolationist. I'm not trying to create a straw man, but like whether or not we can afford to just sort of turn inwards um, and, and not try as best we can to de-escalate um, certain certain conflicts and certain clashes. And I do think there's good reason in both cases, in, in both the case of Ukraine and Taiwan, for America to consider what we can do that's in our interest. And I think the big reconsideration here from the era of nat from the era of neocon dominance is what actually is the threshold for the high level involvement that we've been way too casual with. And actually let's not say casual, eager, eager with. Um, in the past, and I think uh, the way Josh outlined it is exactly how I would uh, exactly how I would describe my own perspective. Yeah, I think I would just add, like, what has the NATO experiment been for, right? If not this, and I think that, like, I don't, I, I'm sort of in, I'm in line. I think Josh with what you put out, which is this idea that again, I think there is an, an international interest in sort of keeping you know, aggressive Russia at bay, even though it is, I do think a dying Petro state, right? <laughs> like it's hard for me in, in the tier of threats, it's hard for me to put Russia at the top when China exists. But I do, I don't think that they should just be able to do whatever they want, right? At the end of the day. And I think a lot of the critique has been on the Biden administration that, you know, there were a lot of diplomatic efforts they could have taken to make, you know, this an extremely painful and sort of 
potentially prevent it from happening to not then be in the position that we are now, which is essentially completely reactive. You know, obviously they lifted the sanctions on Nord Stream 2. They opposed the cruise amendment to reapply them. You know, the list goes on of things that they just haven't been able to do. You saw the Biden press conference where he was like, well, maybe a minor incursion might be fine. Right. Like, it's just like they are obviously taking advantage of our complete like an utter just incompetence on this question. So I am not opposed to like helping our allies defend against this. And I hope that, you know, that's something that we have been doing, but this again is like at some point, and I think Tom Rogan had a really interesting piece in the wall street journal, making this point that like people, you know, Germany isn't our friend here, you know, despite the fact that they have been a NATO ally that we've been funneling, you know, cash and arms deals to them for decades, right. They are completely self-interested on this question. And, and this is honestly something that greater Europe has to start to work out for itself at the end of the day. Like, and, you know, Trump said it inelegantly many times, I think for many people's taste, but yeah, again, this goes back to NATO. What is it for? Germany isn't our friend. And the whole rationale for the Biden administration to de facto take off and de jure take off the sanctions from Nord Stream 2 was specifically to curry favor with Germany. So so how did that work out for the Biden administration? Uh, Also, if the Biden administration is so tough on Russia or should be, since Russia is the threat par excellence, according to all the Russia gators there. Why did he take the sanctions off of Nord Stream 2? And then why did he use the Jim Crow filibuster to quote Glenn Greenwald with his friends in the in the Senate to kill that cruise bill? So, I mean, there's just so much hypocrisy on all sides. This isn't even taking into account, by the way, the fact that we're talking about a potential war with Russia where there could be a nuclear exchange in the middle of a midterm election year. We're also not talking about the Biden family's own dealings, financial dealings with both Russian and Ukrainian government linked individuals, which, of course, has to color whatever the policy is or at a very minimum creates the appearance of it. And, you know, the most fundamental questions that we go to are what is in the U.S. national interest? What is the lowest cost, least risk way to pursue that national interest? But then when it comes to these foreign conflicts, what about the parties that are involved with them? What will do they have to step up or not, as the case may be? Because we can't make that decision for them. You know, Tucker Carlson's whole argument has been about we don't care about sovereignty here, yet we care about sovereignty everywhere else in the world. I mean, that just puts our priorities completely backwards. And lastly, and I'll use this for to start parting thoughts, and I'll just open this as sort of a rhetorical question, but Assume Joe Biden was competent. He boasted a long track record of success and wisdom when it comes to matters of war and peace. And of course, Robert Gates said he's been wrong on everything in the 40 plus years that he's seen him, even though Joe Biden would claim to be a foreign policy whiz kid who sat at the top on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for over a decade and then was a VP. So also assume that our military, our intelligence officials and our foreign policy leaders were wholly unwoke and strictly U.S. national interest oriented. Given those constraints, do you think Russia would threaten an invasion anywhere in the world? I think the answer is probably pretty self-evident. And do you think either side would risk a nuclear exchange over Ukraine? I think that also speaks for itself. And, And the last point I'll make on this is, you know, Trump, not only was he able to garner more funds for NATO from these otherwise recalcitrant members, but he also kept stability in the world. I literally believe when you look, when you step back and look at it and you consider that it is basically the same foreign policy establishment, the same woke generals to a large extent, uh, the same intelligence officials, the fact that Trump did not get us embroiled in any other war and actually tried, fought tooth and nail to try to get us out of Afghanistan and beyond in the Middle East 
The only reason that there was the stability and the order for that was because foreign powers knew that if they did, in fact, threaten America, we would react with overwhelming but very pointed force. Qasem Soleimani, the attack on him being the living, breathing manifestation of this. It's you threaten overwhelming force in very limited situations to avoid embroiling yourselves in quagmire conflicts. It's so basic. It's just basic human nature. And I really believe that at the end of the day, Trump was basically it was the finger in the dike. It was literally one leader could make that much of a difference between whether Xi Jinping would move on to Taiwan or not, whether Vladimir Putin would move on to Ukraine or not. So elections and voting against mean tweets have consequences. I guess that's what I'll say. I'll pick up on with my final thoughts, kind of going back to the the, the China issue and, and and corporate America. I just have something that's been stuck in my craw today on this issue, which is that, uh, you know, big tech has been all over Capitol Hill this week, pushing this argument that any attempt to reign in their power means China wins. And you're just starting to see this China threat be manipulated in ways that are just so stupid. It kind of goes back to this notion of corporate America being like China's biggest friend. And yet these companies have the gall to be like, but if you govern us in any way, it just means China wins. Just to unpack briefly how stupid an argument that is. I mean, you have Google, right, like building an AI office in Beijing. You have Google offering to build a censored search engine for China. And yet this is supposed to be our bulwark. This is supposed to be, you know, our American champion against China. I mean, any of these companies would give, you know, whatever the value might be to gain access to that Chinese market. In so many cases, they have planted the flag with China against America. Just look at the deal that Apple struck with China, right, to help them develop technology that will be used by the government to threaten the United States. So kind of goes back again to the sort of theme that we come back to all the time, which is, you know, corporate America's complicit behavior with China and that we can't have a China policy until we manage that. Please, if anyone's listening who takes that argument from big tech seriously, I'm here to tell you that it's okay to say it's self-evidently stupid because it is. My final thought (laughs) is that Rachel intentionally copied my outfit today because I'm starting to think she has like a somewhat (laughs) female obsession, um, which is fair. No doubt, no doubt. Appropriate. Uh, So I'll just like just piggybacking right off of exactly what Rachel said. As she was talking, I was thinking about Elon Musk, um, who has some very wonderful qualities that are are fun and uh, enjoyable and amusing um, and sort of own the libs in an amusing way. Uh, But he also is complicit uh, with the CCP, even some who sort of purports to have our country's interests um, at at heart, even though you have people like the Nike CEO saying we're like Chinese company. Um, Elon Musk doesn't you know, exactly speak like that, but he will go lavish praise on the CCP um, and sort of use their talking points and open factories in Xinjiang. <laughs> we're not talking about another part of China, we're talking about Xinjiang. Um, and it's a good example of, I think, how our uh, tech elites, especially the technocrats and uh, um, it, the the sort of World Economic Forum Davos sect really thinks that they can uh, central plan their way out of institutional distrust. That they, if they could only get more power into their hands, they could organize the world in such a way that uh, benefited everyone. And so, in that case, they're constantly interfacing with each other, right? They're not interfacing interfacing with the working class or the middle class. They're interfacing with each other, and their interests are very much the interests of their bubble. Um, they don't really understand how to fix any of those problems, but they're thoroughly convinced that they do. 
And it just so happens that all of those solutions um, increase their personal wealth and, and their profits. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, um, but this is they're trying to wrest power back from the people actively. They're very upset about nationalist movements and populist movements, and they're getting anxious about it. And they're trying to take back the power into their own hands so they can do their central planning around the entire country. They have the global interest ahead of any nation's individual interest, and that is absolutely unacceptable for the corporate class that benefits from all of the values of being incorporated in the United States of America. So I'll do my final thought, kind of going back to the first topic of the Breyer uh, retirement and the, and the nomination fight that is to come here. So kind of as we're recording this, uh, Jen Psaki at the White House has confirmed that the nominee will be a black woman. And we alluded to this, this was a campaign promise, not that Joe Biden hasn't flip flops on any number of other issues, of course, already, but I think I think this point is worth emphasizing because it is it is really toxic. Okay, I mean, so earlier this week I was out of Missouri. I um, I, I did two FedSoc events, one at the state capitol in Jefferson City. I was, I was on a critical race theory panel, and then that same day I was over at University of Missouri Law School in Columbia, which is not far from Jefferson City. But, and they were both on education, critical race theory, and kind of like the overarching point that like I really try to hammer home on this topic, which is not exactly a novel insight, but it just needs to be said apparently is how contrary this stuff, this garbage, this Ibram X. Kendi, all this identity politics, this intersectional nonsense is to the American creed. It, it stands directly against, obviously, you know, the Declaration of Independence. It stands directly against Abraham Lincoln's you know, famous and repeated invocations of the Declaration of Independence. It stands manifestly against the 14th Amendment enshrining equality into our constitutional fabric. It stands against, obviously, um, at least the telos, if not necessarily kind of how it's played out of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, um, you know, um, or, or 64, I should say, the, you know, how it's played out, obviously, is the subject of Chris Caldwell's recent book. But at least the animating spirit of that was a spirit uh, of kind of genuine uh, equality. So all, all of this stuff is just terrible. I mean, like, what kind of message does it send to, um, let's just stick with liberals, to like young liberal, like left-leaning lawyers, law students. Let's say you're like very far left, okay? You're like a Birkenstock wearing, you know, New York Times reading, like whatever. You're you kale salad vegan, like, like you, you, know, you drive a Tesla, whatever, like the whole thing. Like, who are you to say that like, X person there just simply cannot be a Supreme Court justice one day because of like the content of your skin. I mean, that's disgusting. Okay. Like, I am sorry. That is utterly disgusting. And like, I, I understand that he thinks he's fulfilling a campaign promise. It obviously was a ridiculous promise to make. I guess it was said in the context of the 1619 riots and the, you know, after the death of St. George Floyd in Minnesota and, and, and all this stuff here. But I think it's just a point just worth hammering home here. And, you know, I, I think there's potentially kind of a 2022 midterm issue if Republicans want to run on it. But, you know, Republicans are never eager to run on identity politics and kind of intersectional and all this kind of race stuff. But if they wanted to, I think I think kind of, you know, the campaign line kind of, you know, basically writes itself. Um, he, he literally he, he he literally said a black woman. Now, I, I don't think it was even a woman of color. I think he said black woman. So, you know, uh, you can easily appeal to Hispanic voters, too, obviously, and say like, uh, like the, the hypothetical that I just said, like a young kind of like liberal white person, let's like substitute white for Hispanic. And the point still stands. So, you know, I, I think Republicans could potentially make this a campaign issue, which kind of only bolsters what I said earlier about how the actual politics of the Breyer retirement could actually potentially redound even further to Republicans benefit. 
So I'll take the last one and I'll note that nothing says return to normalcy, like imposing a race test to determine a Supreme Court justice. This is the utter and total repudiation of really 50 plus years of civil rights movement and it's a rejection of Martin Luther King Jr. And that is really what critical race theory died, diversity, inclusion and equity and all of the associated ideologies are about. They totally reject Martin Luther King and they believe in it's not even reverse racism. They basically just replace class warfare with race warfare. That's why I'd call CRT and all of these associated ideologies racial Marxism. That's really what they are at their core. So on that note, for Josh, Emily, and Rachel, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten. We'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.